0: Hey, I'm Bailey. I'm Michael. And welcome back to the Facing the Gates podcast. Today, we are here uh, to interview Father Mark of St. Elizabeth, the new Modern Russian Orthodox Church. Did I get that right? That's correct. All right, cool. So, I guess to kind of start out, how did you end up as a priest?
1: Well, like a good Southern story, this one has a long front porch. Um, I have, I come from a line of actual Um, actually Catholic clergy. Um, I grew up Roman Catholic, went through 12 years of Catholic school. My great uncle was a Catholic priest, and he was a chaplain in the U.S. Army as well. One of my great aunts was an abbess of a convent. Um, Another great aunt was a a lay sister. And then uh, a great uncle of mine was a Trappist monk, and in fact— He was at uh, Gethsemane in Kentucky, and he was uh, friends with the the famous Catholic monk, Thomas Merton. And in fact, he took his vows a day or two before Thomas Merton. And I didn't know that until much later, I sent him a copy of a Byzantine-style icon of the Mother of God that my wife, who's an iconographer, painted. And then out the stories came, and then out the correspondence with my great uncle, who I didn't really correspond with much before, um, I'd only met him maybe a half dozen times or so. But so anyway, circling back around, I come from, I come by honestly, I guess, um, being a, a family of, of clerics. But yeah. when I was in Catholic school, uh, our in 10th grade and 12th grade, we had a teacher who taught church history and theology. And he was a Melkite or Byzantine Rite Catholic. And... We learned about the Christian East in 10th and 12th grade, and we attended a few liturgies, the Divine, uh, Divine Liturgies of St. John Chrysostom uh, in the Melkite format under the Pope of Rome. And uh, I was intrigued. Um, I remember he also taught horticulture, this particular teacher, and when we were helping him, he sent a couple of us to his house to pick up something. And in his foyer was a Byzantine icon of Christ with a lit lampada in front of it. And it had a sort of spoke to me in sort of a cliche sort of way. Um, but it there was a certain depth to it that I didn't experience in the Roman Catholic Church. I, always, I wouldn't have articulated it this way at that time, but it felt juridical. Uh, it felt very legalistic. And it didn't seem to have a deep mystical component. I mean, there was mysticism for sure, but it was really in the imagination and in the emotions, and it didn't seem to have uh, a depth into the divine itself. But I, that was conveyed to me. Now, again, I wouldn't have articulated it quite that way as a 16-year-old, but I felt it. And I said to myself, I'm not sure what this is all about, but I know it's for me, uh, Eastern Christianity, broadly speaking. And then after I graduated high school, I sort of put that aside. Uh, I was in college, not really thinking too much about those sorts of things. And then I was going through the college catalog. This was back in the days when they were paper. And you flip through, and I was looking for an elective. And I always had an interest in religious studies. Um, Knowing my background, uh, I always wondered, am I going to end up a priest one day? So anyway. I came across this class entitled, Christ and Christian Doctrine, and it was a patristic look at the Christian faith. I didn't even know what patristic meant at that point. I didn't know it meant the early church fathers, but it sounded important, it sounded deep. So I took a chance, took the class, and in point of fact, the professor who was leading the class, teaching the class, he was on himself a a journey, he was on a journey to orthodoxy. And so the readings were from some of the classic uh, church fathers, the fathers of the Christian East primarily. Uh, the primary text was by a Father Callistos Ware, who's now Metropolitan Callistos Ware, a very famous convert Orthodox theologian. And it opened up a lot of doors for me to take that class to think about things. And so then I started investigating uh, the Orthodox Church And it took, you know, a number of years to kind of go through that process. But about coming up on 30 years ago, I became Orthodox. Um, And then um, a few years later, we were looking to have a Russian Orthodox church in the Columbia, South Carolina area. And we wanted a Russian Orthodox church uh, for the tradition, for the liturgical expression of the the depth of the of the orthodox faith and so we petitioned to then bishop gabriel of manhattan who's now archbishop of canada and he gave us a blessing just to start a mission parish and we started with about six people and no money no anything and that was 21 years oh no sorry that was 24 years ago and there was about a two or three year period where we would have a visiting priest come probably once a month. And we kept petitioning the bishop, well, we, we need a priest. What about this priest? He's the second priest or the third priest at this big church. He's willing to move to South Carolina. What about this deacon? He's about ready to be ordained. He would be interested in moving to South Carolina. And at every turn, the bishop said, no, that's not the right fit. And eventually, in frustration, I said to him, well, who is the right fit? And he said, you. And while I had that in the back of my mind, it wasn't what I expected the answer to be. So it took a little bit of soul searching and then agreement from my wife. But roughly about a year later, I was ordained to the diaconate and he, the bishop said, well, be, be a deacon. Let's see how that goes. And then if, you're, uh, if it fits, then, then I'll ordain you the priest. And so this uh, parish of St. Elizabeth will have a priest. And be a full functioning parish, even though it was small. And so I was ordained to the diaconate. And a couple of weeks later, he said, well, so are you ready? (laughs) And I was like, well, I didn't think a while was two weeks. But anyway, (laughs) after about nine or 10 months, um, maybe 11, I'm not exactly sure now, um, I was ordained to the priesthood. And I'm the first priest of this parish. And again, I've been the priest for uh, 21 years. And so that's that's the long, the long story to the short question.
0: All right, there's a lot there. Yeah, there's a little, do you, do lot. Do you need any translations there. for any of the, the big words you said? No, I'm just gonna no. go with Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so, from an Orthodox perspective, why should
1: Christians go to church? Oh yes. Um, from the Orthodox perspective, the central act of worship is the liturgy. And in the liturgy, uh, the core of it is the Eucharist to receive Christ's body and blood um, in the bread and wine that has been changed into the body and blood of Christ. Uh, the Lord says, and this is in John 6, "Insofar as you eat my blood and drink my, eat my body and drink my blood, you have life in you." And of course, the opposite is true. If you don't have that, you don't have life, and Christ is the way, the truth and the life, so it's actually have, having Christ in you. So when an Orthodox Christian, the reason to come to church is everything is centered on the reception of the Eucharist because that is where we commune with God. It's called communion, but it's we are um, communing with God. We are coming together with God in a union. Uh, And so the entire liturgical life of the church, all the church services, they emanate out from that center, which is the liturgy, where the Eucharist is served, and lead back to it. So the reason why an Orthodox Christian goes to church, of course, it's in Acts the Apostles. They met together, so there's an historical continuity of practice. But the essence and the reason, the raison d'etre of that practice, is to come together to have the Eucharist, and all the extra services are meant to shape us spiritually to be in a position to receive uh, Christ's body and blood in such a way that it transforms us. Um, In St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in the 11th chapter, uh, he talks about those who partake of communion unworthily. Uh, They do it to their damnation. Some are asleep, he says, some are dead. Um, But he also says our goal spiritually there is to properly discern um the body and blood of christ in the eucharist um, so all these services help to shape us to prepare us spiritually so we receive it in such a way where we properly discern it so it actualizes within us that connection with god that communion that um, uh, that touching that light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world from from john 1 9 which is at the core of our very being so that is essentially why we go to church it's to shape us to be able to be um, spiritually prepared to receive um, that which gives us life so that we can have communion with life itself with Christ himself
2: I think that's a very well thought out beautiful answer for that question whereas I've seen with a lot of other churches there's so many other answers but yeah that by far is one of the if not the most well thought out and well-spoken ones
0: yeah um it that's that's one of the pros of asking everyone the same questions is you get to see those differences and you get to see i guess who thinks things out more or
2: less not to be pejorative but yeah and plus theologically i've seen i've noticed some churches kind of shy away from communion that, and that it's like a once a quarter thing or once a month, whereas the more traditional sections really take it seriously mm-hmm. and take it seriously in both spiritual and practice, yeah, so branching off of that, what is itinerary for your average church service
1: like? Well, I'm not a hundred percent sure. What, the, what it means, the itinerary, but I will break down the like, liturgy. Yeah, that's basically yeah. the question. Okay. Um, the, essentially, the liturgy, the historic liturgy, and this is the liturgy that would have been celebrated in a similar format from Acts the Apostles to, to, till today. We have commentaries of the liturgy going back to the 4th century, and it has relatively the same structure. And the structure is, the first part is called the Liturgy of the Faithful. Um, Sorry, it's called the Liturgy of the Word, the Liturgy of the Catechumens. I misspoke. The Liturgy of the Word, uh, we say it that way because it relates to a particular teaching or unfolding of Scripture um, and how it relates to us spiritually and how it draws us back to Christ. Um, And it's sometimes called the Liturgy of the Catechumens because the first part of the liturgy is didactic. It's, it's a teaching element. And it begins with two antiphons, um, and this is, these are the psalm numbers according to the Septuagint version, but Psalm 102 and Psalm 145 um, are sung at the beginning of the liturgy. Interspersed with them are uh, litanies or petitions that if there's a deacon serving, he will intone them, and the choir responds and the people respond by singing, Lord, have mercy. Um, and those petitions uh, include everything um, for good weather, for health, uh, for peace, uh, for, the, the, for our town, for our city, um, for health. Uh, and then the uh, antiphons, again, Psalms 102 and 145, are meant to kind of instruct us. Uh, there's a lot I could break down every single line. But one of the, the key lines is, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he set our sins from us. And it's a really interesting turn of phrase. I mean, some people think that psalmody um, is just poetic. It's not just poetic. Uh, there's a precision to it. And and also, this is a testimony that the Psalmist David understood that the world was round and not flat. Because if you think about it, if you go north and you perpetually go north, think about the globe, you'll end up going south. If you go south perpetually, you'll end up going north. But if you go east and go east, you always go east. And if you go west, you always go west. There's never a time where by going west you go east or by going east you go west. So when we hear that teaching, um, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he set our sins from us, that means the work, the redemptive work that Christ did actually established a reality to where he separated separated us from our sins by his life and death on the cross and resurrection in such a way that cannot be bridged. He's done all the heavy lifting. Um, So that's just one example but there are all kinds of nuggets through those Psalms 102 and 145. Then it's followed by the Beatitudes. It's that section, ostensibly from Matthew 5. Um, blessed are the, uh, the peacemakers, blessed are the poor, blessed are the merciful. Uh, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Uh, talks about being persecuted in, in verse 5 11. Um, but that. Sermon on the Mount is the beginning of the Lord's earthly ministry insofar as he gives us a very profound teaching, and it's summarized in those Beatitudes. So again, that's a teaching element that goes on, and, and it not only is it teaching those who are learning about the faith, but it's also reminding us who are in the faith um, as a way of shaping us spiritually. Uh, that's followed. We sing um, what are called triparia and Kantakian. And those are just hymns for the day. Um, there's always a hymn about the resurrection because when we come together on Sunday, we celebrate the Lord's resurrection. Um, as a side note, when in Acts of the Apostles, when they're choosing uh, by lot an apostle to replace Judas, the function, it says in Acts of the Apostles, is to proclaim the resurrection. So that's, that's what we do in the liturgy. So we have hymns to the resurrection we'll have hymns for the saint of the day, the uh, exemplar through church history that has personified what, in other words, shows us what it looks like to put Christ at the center of your life. Uh, and then we have an epistle reading from St. Paul, teaching from St. Paul, and we have a teaching from the gospel. Uh, and that sort of concludes that first part of the liturgy, which again is didactic, um, It's the teaching element. But the second part of the liturgy is called the Liturgy of the Faithful, um, and it begins with an anaphora, which means offering. But the second part is more of a mystical sense. It's mystically connecting us to Christ through the Eucharist because this, the hymnography, the prayer said, everything is meant to accentuate spiritually um, the receiving of the Eucharist. Um, There's a hymn... uh, uh, it's called the Trubicon or the, um, the Hymn of the Cherubim. Um, uh, Let us, who mystically represent the Cherubim, sing the thrice holy hymn to Lycran Trinity, now lay aside all earthly care. So that's for us to mystically be close to Christ, just as the Cherubim are and the Seraphim are. And um, so that's the beginning of that part, the um, liturgy of the faithful. Um, And again, I should say to define faithful, when we Orthodox say faithful, we mean precisely those people who receive the Eucharist, those people who are in the fullness of the church and are able to receive Christ's body and blood. Um, So anyway, I I guess I'm, I'm talking a little bit too long, but on this one, but in short, the itinerary is there are two parts. Every Sunday, for every Sunday liturgy, there's a didactic portion, a teaching that connects us to christ and then that mystical component where the hymns and the prayers uh, get us spiritually connected um, to receiving the eucharist and then if we pull back more broadly um, the what happens within the liturgy is a microcosm of the spiritual life as it's outlined by the uh, the early church fathers and uh, it's this that the spiritual life consists of uh, purgation, illumination, and union. Uh, The first part, purgation, is purging or separating ourselves out from those things that keep us from Christ. So that's kind of what happens during the didactic portion of the liturgy. Um, That's not all that happens, but that's part of what happens. Um, And then when the gospel book is brought out, it's a shiny gold book, and we read from the gospel. The deacon, if he's here, or the priest Uh, We'll uh, chant the gospel, and then we, in a sense, see Christ. So we're illumined by Christ, and the idea is to see Christ and to see with the light of Christ. And then when we have communion, we have union with him. So that spiritual journey that is the broader spiritual journey of one's life is actually uh, crystallized and synthesized um, there in the divine liturgy itself. So there are many levels of uh, symbolism and meaning that go on in the, in the liturgy in those two sections, the liturgy of the catechumens or the word and the liturgy of the faithful.
2: All right. That's again, another very well thought out and explained. Yeah. and don't worry about going too long. All right. I love it. Yeah. Okay. It, a lot, it, challenge accepted. It's <laughs> my favorite part of the interviews and for our next question, what is the place of your church within the community?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, first of all, um, our place within the community is to be a spiritual center. Um, and here, if we think about one of my favorite epistles, uh, the Epistle of James, in its five short chapters, and it's again it's a great presentation of the christian life and what we need to do to be in alignment line with christ and be saved ultimately but in the last chapter chapter 5 verse 16 uh, the the apostle james says the prayer of the righteous man availeth much so in some sense the most important thing that we can do is to pray for the community and the reason why i mentioned before in the last answer calling the faithful as the technical term of those who are inside the church, because in the context of the liturgy and the church services, we pray for this city, this country, and the faithful that dwell therein. So we're praying for everybody. So our first and foremost, it's, it's prayer for the world. Um, and insofar as we do that, and we also purify ourselves spiritually, individually through prayer, then we are, we are then lights in the community, spiritual lights. Um, and if we take what we do here in the church in the divine services and it really impacts us, it changes who we are, then when we're out in the world and when we interface with people, um, when we have an opportunity for, a, um, for charity, we're charitable. When we have an opportunity to be kind or merciful, comforting we do those sorts of things and it becomes second nature to us it's it's natural Um, and i think that sometimes some churches kind of kind of lose that hierarchical structure to how we relate to the community and they go more in the direction of sort of social justice Um, now there is a, a place for actual work in the community, and I'll get to that in a second, but but it has to start with prayer. Um the when the Lord is asked more than one time uh what, what must we do to be saved, he said to Lord the to love the Lord thy God with thy heart, all thy strength, all thy mind, and all thy soul, and then to love thy neighbor as thyself. And he says, This is the second great and great commandment, but the second is like unto it. So there's a hierarchical structure. Uh, to that approach, and if we don't have that grounding spiritually, how can we really offer good service, um, good charity, good mercy, um, according to what Christ really wants? And it's easy uh, to be distracted by certain political motives, but our motives are always with regards to um, glorifying God in doing what we do, but also to help that person because we're called to do so uh, before we go into great Lent we have some preparatory thematic Sundays um, and Lent is that time when we work on ourselves spiritually uh, more intensely it's like a tithe of the year spiritually to receive uh, and uh, Christ's resurrection from the dead Pascha or Easter But we read from Matthew 25, and the the end of Matthew 25 is what happens if you don't live charitably, what happens if you don't uh, feed those who need to be fed or clothe those who need to be clothed or visit those who are imprisoned. Um, Those people who neglect that are separated out, um, and they are out there with wailing and gnashing of teeth. So we're actually commanded that it's a prerequisite for our salvation to do these things. So in order to kind of do that properly, we, we start with prayer. Now, as far as the sort of practical side of things, what we do in the community is we're in a lo- sort of lower middle class uh, neighborhood. Our church is in the midst of it. So we help those who people do come up and we um, give them money as we are able. Uh, we definitely feed them. Um, we participate uh, quietly in uh, charitable giving. We contribute to um, Harvest Hope Food Bank. We contribute to His House Ministries. We contribute to Mission Lexington. Um, we help in those ways. But also, we just help on the street. Uh, unfortunately, two of our neighbors recently died. And they're not members of the church. But they're elderly, and it was an elderly woman, and so we went, we uh, cleaned her house every other week. Um, a couple times a week, we, we brought her meals. We just would visit and talk with her. Um, you know, when you get to be sometimes older, your family members kind of forget on a day-to-day basis you're there. And then a couple doors down, there was an elderly gentleman. He died around Thanksgiving, and... Uh, we mowed his yard. We cleaned out his backyard. He had gotten citations that he had too much junk, and so we cleaned it out. We did home repairs, and, we, and again, we brought meals every Sunday and every so often. And then we actually just talked to them um, and just be, be neighborly. So it doesn't sound like this intense uh, social program, but it's more of an intimate, um, individual, personal Uh, approach. Um, Again, it's non-political. We are called to be charitable. We're not necessarily called to support a government that uses your taxes to do um, social things. Uh, That's kind of a step removed. But the Lord didn't mean us to like cast a vote or whatever and be so far removed. He meant for us to do it ourselves. And so that's kind of the, the approach that we take.
2: See, one thing I've noticed, and this is again more with the more modern denominations, is it's, it feels very ego driven in the way that they approach those things instead of starting spiritually. And then with that going forward, it seems they start with an earthly means and push their narrative or push their earthly beliefs through. That charitable notion, whereas it seems you guys are very spiritual and heartfelt, like just sitting there talking with them. That means more to me as someone who is not in the church Mm -hmm. than you helping a hundred people because you talk to to brag about it and
0: be like, hey, we helped all these
2: people. Check it out. You building that intimate relationship shows that you care, whereas that's just a hundred empty faces to them. So that's something that I think it's lost in the narrative with a lot of modern denominations in Christianity. It's not about you. It's about who you're serving.
1: And again, to go back to the Sermon on the Mount that we talked about with regards to uh, it being chanted during the liturgy, um, in the sixth chapter of Matthew, he talks about how to pray um, how to fast, and how to give alms. And when he talks about giving alms, the Lord says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So there's a certain level of anonymity, even from yourself. So you're not even supposed to know yourself that you're being charitable. In other words, you factor out the opportunity for the ego to pat yourself on the back and say, look what I did. I did this great thing. You know, and that's the, the sin of vainglory in the fathers you know, give us techniques to stay away from that. But the Lord gives the primary teaching that there's a certain anonymity, even with oneself, about one's charitable giving. And that, again, that's that's sort of the intent uh, of the approach.
0: All right. I don't have anything to say because you just have good answers, so I'm just going to leave them alone. And anyway, um, so the next question is, how is your church governed?
1: Yeah. So the... The church is, is governed, again, we have to go back to Acts the Apostles, um, and we go back to the day of Pentecost itself. The apostles were descended upon um, with the tongues of fire, with the, you know, the Holy Spirit, um, and they ordained their followers with a laying on of hands. Again, this is in Acts the Apostles. And then they lay their followers, hands on their followers through ordination. Um, and what's actually called an epiclysis or a descent of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just they lay hands and say, hey, poof, you're this, but actually within the context of the church, there's a prayer of the Holy Spirit calling down the Holy Spirit to uh, recapitulate Pentecost, that it's the Holy Spirit that uh, guides and governs and all this. And so the way that manifests itself all the way to today, to kind of fast forward, that um, there are bishops and those are the laying on of hands of bishops. And again, we see this in Acts the Apostles ordain presbyters or priests and deacons. Um, The priests and deacons are an extension of the bishop's ministry and were governed by a collection of of bishops um, collegially. It's not a um, papal structure. It's a uh, Episcopal or uh, collegial or in, in Russian it's actually called Sobornost um, and these bishops are in a what's called the Synod of Bishops uh, and they come together in, in council and they um, uh, guide the church they direct the church um, they don't invent the church they just convey in their teaching and through their apostolic ministry sacramentally through Holy orders and through preaching and and otherwise, um, the faith that has always been believed and handed down, and that's you know, if you think of um, the very short epistle of Jude in the third verse. Um, so, in in short, it's governed by uh, a collection of bishops, and in the Russian Church, we're in the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, so we have bishops all over the world. Um, They are coordinated by a uh, chief hierarch or first hierarch. uh, Metropolitan Hilarion uh, is his name. And he sort of calls the meetings together, calls them together, but they administer the church together. Each has his own diocese, his own geographic territory where he's, um, the churches in his territory are his ministry and his priests are the representatives and extensions of his ministry, um, you know, in those locales. Um, And yeah, I mean, ultimately the head of the church is Jesus Christ. Um, It's it's not a pope, it's not a bishop, but um, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you're looking for. Yeah,
0: it it is pretty much. Um, I think that kind of begs the question, because basically what you're saying is that You're reporting to a bishop, and the bishop is reporting to the archbishop. Once you go so far up, is it just a council of bishops? Correct. Is there—so there's no one specific bishop that has more
1: authority than the others? No, they're all bishops. They're all equally bishops. Some have more temporal jurisdiction than others, but he's no more of a bishop than— The Patriarch of Russia is no more a bishop than a vicar bishop in our diocese who doesn't have a territorial see. They're all equally bishops. They do the same thing. Okay, gotcha. Uh,
2: And I really like that at the end you emphasize the one leader in so many words instead of, I don't think anybody else has done that. I think that might be a first. Yeah. Because, and to me that's powerful inning of itself
0: so I have a, a big question next is um, can you explain what theosis is and is it pagan and I, I kind of need to expand what I mean by that I don't mean like you stole it from the pagans what I mean is um, as Saint Athanasius put it um, God became man so that man might become God is that not uh, and I know this is not what he means. This is why I'm going to get you to explain it. Right. But um, isn't that kind of what Satan did is try to become God. So I guess kind of unpack what theosis is and how it's not that thing. Basically.
1: Okay. All right. Um, well, first of all, um, theosis just means uh, another term for it is deifi- deification or that man is to be deified or made like, like God or participate uh, in God is a bit, probably a better way to put it. Um, in the second epistle of Peter, the apostle Peter says that we are to be partakers of the divine nature. Um, and as, as Christ says, and I believe it's John 17, when he's in Gethsemane, um, he talks about that people, he wants people to be one with him as he is one with the Father. So in, in short, deification or theosis is that. It's that oneness with God. Now, to step back for a moment, that it's not to become a God. It's not to have independent power or prerogatives rivaling God. You don't become your own creator. You don't become your own judge. You don't, you don't become your own arbiter of what is good and bad, um, what is virtuous and what is not virtuous, um, that still is connected to God. Um, God is uh, transcendent. He's above everything that we are. Um, and there's no common measure between us and God. But that transcendence, uh, God is also transcendent, but he's also imminent. Uh, in other words, he can't be held out of his created order. Otherwise, he would be limited. And so he is imminent. He is, at the very core, he's not contained by, but he's... He's at the very core. He's the life and the center of all that exists. Um, And in the orthodox um, patristic terminology, the transcendence in in a sense corresponds to God's essence. That is who he is in himself. And that's something that we cannot comprehend. We cannot um, know him as he knows himself. We can know of, of that, but not know him as he knows himself. Um, and then with regards to God's imminence, his um, centrality in the created order, um, the fathers talk about that being his His energies. And so we connect to God in his energies, and, and that is actually ultimately the goal of the Christian life, to um, participate in all the fullness of God, as St. Paul says, again, to participate in the very divine nature of Christ himself. So. But that theosis, again, is not independent, and it requires a spiritual life. It requires, as I said earlier, leading the kind of life that separates yourself, that leads away from Christ, that leads away from God. It's leading a life that you can see Christ in all things and begin to see with Christ and ultimately culminating in that union. And that union is theosis. That union is deification. That union is participating... um, in the again the divine nature but it's something that we we take on the attributes by grace um, not by nature by god is these things by nature but we are by grace by our connection to him by the gift he offers to us so that that's where it's a, a, a different different from Satan, because Satan wants to rival God. He wants to be autonomous or self-headed. He wants all the prerogatives and power, and he thinks that he can have those things uh, and to be an equal rival to God. But theosis is actually just participating in God. Um, and by participating in him, that great gift to us is that, um, you know, these and greater works shall you do, that you can actually in some sense, be for be perfect again, harkening back to the uh, Sermon on the Mount from Matthew five forty eight. Be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect, and that again is an expression of theosis being the goal of the Christian life. So I'm not sure if that directly yeah, answers it your question.
0: So it's kind of like you're the idea is that you're becoming like God in His energies, but you're not becoming in the literal sense that we would think. You're not becoming literally God. Right. You're becoming correct as close to like him as correct. possible
1: basically. because we are to know the the mysteries of the kingdom of god uh, the lord says and that's where we are that knowing or communing with but not that we um become him as he is in himself yes. okay all
0: right um this is a question <clears throat> that we asked when we visited the catholic church um so the answer may be similar it may be different um But why pray to Mary and the saints, and why do you keep the bones of dead
1: guys? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, um, we have to kind of break down what a saint is. Uh, A saint for us is someone who exemplifies the Christian life to such a way that we know he is glorified in heaven. And actually that's the goal for each and every one of us. In fact, the whole purpose of the church is to create saints. That's its one mission in the broadest possible way of of defining it. Um, But when the Lord um, is incarnate, when he takes on humanity, um, we are human nature is taken into himself, into the second person of the Trinity, into Christ. And in the incarnation, all his theandric or divine actions and activities, our human nature is taken along, his death, his resurrection, and even his ascension into heaven. Sometimes we forget about that. So when Christ ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, our human nature is taken with him. And so, of course, it's for us to realize and get there by our own efforts and We'll probably talk about that a little bit later on. Um, but that our goal um, is to be in him glorified um, at, the, at the right hand of God the Father. That's something that the angels don't even have. So a saint is, is one who has, for lack of a better way of putting it, achieved that. Uh, we do have various indications from Scripture that we sing in the church. One is from the Psalms, God is wondrous and His saints. Um, so they are proof of god proofs of God for us um, and so it it for us it stands to reason that if someone is truly a saint, then as they if you could put it this way, look outward from God, they want they would like in their charity because we expect them to be charitable and master all the Christian virtues, they want us to share in what they have. And so any way that they can help us, and they're not dead because they're alive in Christ, again, to quote St. Paul, that uh, they will actually intercede for us, Um, not mediate for us, Christ is the only mediator, but to to intercede for us. Um, It's common parlance that we um, will say to somebody, I'm going through a tough time, you know, please uh, pray for me. So why would we not do that for the saints? Um, if we're asking someone who's just a mere mortal, um, sinful and full of shortcomings for prayer, why wouldn't we ask those who are completely and totally alive in Christ, the saints, um, and a fortiori, or even more so, why wouldn't we do to have the mother of God, the, the one person who didn't miss the mark, didn't have, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, actual sin, but someone who said, be it unto me according to thy word and who was prepared for and held uh, that which cannot be held within her womb um, and then lived a life completely free from actual sin. And someone we believe uh, who died a deathless death, the hymnography says, died in such a way that there was no painful a separation of body from soul, a no uh, absence from from God in any way, shape, or form, but mystically is in heaven um, with Him. So we ask again, ask them, the Mother of God and the Saints for intercessions because of what they are and who they have become and what they continue to be. Um, it, it's just common sense in a in a way, um, you know in I was just listening to the news, and um, you know the big thing now is, is coronavirus. Um, and you, know, are we going to have another wave? Are there going to be more restrictions? But it was interesting. I heard one of the, the press secretary being asked, the president's press secretary being asked, "Well, how do we know that this is the Delta variant? You know, is there a special test for it?" And this person didn't know the answer, and the answer was, "Well, they, they said so. Who's the they? They are the experts." well, we should listen to them because they're the experts. Well, if that's the approach we're going to take, then, you know, the saints are the experts. The mother of God are the experts. So we're going to defer to the experts. So um, it makes perfectly good sense to ask for their help and intercession and guidance. Now, the other thing with regards to what we would call relics, there's a tradition in the Old Testament, of course, where there is honor and veneration to the tombs of, of the prophets and the forefathers. There's even a place in one of the books of Kings uh, with Elias where someone is, is healed by touching um, bones um, of a forefather. But um, for, for us, we believe profoundly in the incarnation and that we are, when Christ took on human flesh, he deified it. Um, that potentiality is there so when there is a saint that even his body um, exudes that the energies of god or um they become something of honor and and it's interesting because we don't really think about it but if we look in secular culture we have tombs to the unknown soldier we have tombs to presidents we have you know monuments to people who have departed so we don't really think about that But So that's just kind of a a holdover or superstition from a more profound way of doing it uh, in the Christian church where it's actually uh, for saints. But to circle back around, um, so there have been cases where um, relics of saints have been incorrupt because they have been so imbued with um, the energies of God through their uh, saintliness. Some have actually... Uh, exuded myrrh. Some are fragrant. They, they smell very lovely, like flowers or or um, incense or what have you. Um, but also, in the very first few centuries of the church, particularly under the Roman persecution, um, it was considered to be a a holy place to be in the catacombs where the saints had been buried. And when they would serve the divine liturgy, they would serve it on top of the bones of these saints. And even to this day, there is a a cloth um, that has an image of Christ being laid out on the tomb um, that the bishop gives to us. And that Upon which that's what we celebrate the divine liturgy. We unfold it and serve the liturgy on that, um, the the Eucharist, um, turning Christ's, turning the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And we have to have that the bishop. We don't have that. It's called an antimens Then we're not allowed to have the liturgy because we're extensions of his ministry. But as a hearkening back to that era and seeing the um, spiritually charged you know, Bones of Saints, that cloth has sewn within itself a relic um, or a piece of bone from one of the saints. And this church, it's actually our patron saint, St. Elizabeth the New Martyr, and her uh, monastic companion, Barbara. But when a church is actually consecrated um, and they create a permanent altar for a a church, they actually put relics in uh, what they build the altar table where the Eucharist is served. So there, there are two reasons. One is because they exude um, sort of a, a hint at a pre-fallenness where there's an incorruptibility by potential and um, even the physical elements um, of, of things. And in this case, the, um, the relics, the bodies or the, the bones of saints, but also the historical element that it was deemed to be a good place to serve the liturgy. Um, because of its connection with the saints. And so I'm not sure if that answers your your, your question, but, but yeah. So yeah, it does. I think it does.
2: Yeah. It answers it for me. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I'm just, I'm just going to let Michael go on because I don't, (laughs) I don't have anything else.
2: All right. And for our next question, according to your traditions, theological perspective, what must one do to be saved?
1: Oh yes. That's a, That's it, right? That's the question. That's the big one. Um, Well, before I answer that, um, I I need to say something about salvation, I think. Um, Do we believe in once saved, always saved? And um, one of the things I think we have to realize is it's broader than that because there's not only a past component, there's a present component and there's a future component. Now, with the past component, um, Christ has done all the work. So he has saved and redeemed mankind. Uh, He says, I have overcome the world. And so we have to believe that. We do believe that. The second part is the question, am I saved right now? And it's connected to the one in the, in the past tense. Some Christians, unfortunately, say, well, yes, I'm saved, Christ did his work, or yes, I'm saved because I made this uh, verbal or emotional or even baptismal commitment, um, so then it's all taken care of. But the, the problem with that is even St. Paul was afraid that he would be rejected in the end. So, salvation for us is an ongoing process. One, Christ has won the victory. Yes, we have been brought into the faith through baptism, and we recite the creed, and we state what we believe, and we make those acknowledgments, Um, but we have to lead a life practicing the the Christian virtues, and praying, and fasting, and giving alms, um, so that... At the end of the day, we are saved. So Christ has won the victory. We have to sort of join in the parade and we have to stay in the parade. So it's not just a one-time thing. So what must we do to be saved? Well, obviously, Scripture tells us that we have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And then Scripture also says that, um, you know, we have to receive uh, Christ's body and blood. Um, So we need to do that to be saved. Um, We're also told that we have to give all that we have away and follow Christ, and 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 that. So we have all these answers as to what it all means. So so how how do we make sense of that? How does an Orthodox Christian make sense of this? So an Orthodox Christian would say, um, number one is that uh, you were baptized. That's a prerequisite, that's also in scripture. Um, that too, we, um, we pray fast and give alms because that's detailed in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, um, but then also we are to, um, you know, to lead the complete uh, uh, Christian life. Um, we're to love God completely and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we have to do the, these things Um, And when I say that, um, that includes for us, you know, coming to the divine service, to the liturgy, receiving his body and blood. So it's kind of like the whole thing. What must I do to be saved? Um, But again, that's how we realize the reality that's already been accomplished. So we don't take anything away from God to say, I have to do all these things because God hasn't done it. We have to do all these things because God has done it, and we want to conform to it and participate in it and live it. So that's kind of a a broader answer, and it's not just a a one-time thing. Um, But ultimately, it's to put things into the right perspective spiritually. That would be one way to answer it. Um, When we are baptized, there's a point in the baptismal service where... We sing from St. Paul, as many has been put on, as many have been baptized and put on Christ. Um, and so we believe that sort of literally. And we're taken around a table in the center of which sits the gospel book. And so the symbolism there is that the gospel is to be the center of our lives. So that's, you know, an expression of salvation. Make the gospel the center of our lives and all that that implies. And basically everything I've talked about to this point is, is implied in that. When, um, if it's one's vocation to be married, a similar thing happens. There's a table in, in, uh, in the center of the church upon which sits the gospel book, the golden gospel book. And a part, there's a part of the service where the priest takes the wedding couple, their first steps together are around the gospel book. And that's symbolic, again, that this gospel needs to be the center of that marital relationship. It's not just an agreement between the man and the woman, but it's a blessing connecting the two by God and by living the gospel with each other, um, you know, that's where the salvation is, the salvation being in the marriage. And if you are, have the vocation to be ordained uh, to the diaconate or the priesthood or the episcopacy, um, actually what happens is as you're ordained, this time it's in the, in the altar area around the altar table, um, the deacon and the priest, they're taken around the table three times, again, that the gospel is the center of the the ministerial life. Um, And to take it even one step further, and by the way, y'all are invited, um, is that when I die, and hopefully, God willing, I'm still a good standing Orthodox priest, that they take the coffin around the church three times because You know his life was around the gospel it's marvelous spectacular to see that so y'all are y'all invited if y'all are around but anyway so you know the broadest answer is to have the gospel at the center of one's life manifested in all the ways that i've articulated Um, so again it's a way of life Um, it's a way of life and and that's maybe i'm digressing here that's one of the difficulties that I think people have on a day-to-day basis understanding orthodoxy or the ancient church's approach. Um, I think probably since the 1960s forward, at least in this country, but I think probably it's a worldwide phenomenon, that spirituality or the life of the church is a glorified self-help technique that this is what we do for a certain little portion of the week that helps us get through the week and get through things just fine. Um, but that's not doing um, what one needs to do for salvation. It's actually the other way around. It's that the gospel or the life of the church, the life of the fullness of the faith is our life, and then everything we do is in connection with as a, or a prolongation of that. So it's probably... A slightly different answer. I think it's a holistic approach, um, but it's just not a list of like here are these three things. Check them off, and I'm I'm good. It's it's about an entire life.
2: I think that's a good answer. Or yeah, to, because I, one one thing, especially, I'm glad you touched on the once save always save thing. I've always viewed that when people bring that up, especially in certain denominations, it's kind of a cop out. It's kind of a coping mechanism to make them feel better about their earthly life Mm -hmm. instead of focusing spiritually on where they need to be and what should matter. It's a, oh, well, at the end of the week or at the start of the week, I go to church. All is forgiven. We'll start fresh and we'll do it all over again next week. See you guys then. Instead of taking what you've learned and taking the power of the gospel Mm -hmm. and letting it go through you and you live through it instead of doing that you're just putting a little hour each week to pat yourself on the back and feel better
0: yeah um i i agree with you but just to be devil's advocate here um i understand the appeal of like the whole once saved always saved idea Mm -hmm. i don't believe in it but i understand the appeal because if you're if you're quote unquote not, if you don't have that security, I guess, how do you not constantly second guess yourself every time you do something wrong or every time you kind of fall short or maybe you're questioning your intentions because, you know, the heart's deceitful? Right. How do you kind of work through
1: that? Right. Um, again, as I, I mentioned, our view is Christ has overcome the world. And so it, it's interesting. There are a couple of times in the, in the gospel. One is when Christ is asleep um he's out in a boat fishing with the apostles. The the um the sea is tumultuous, um, and he's asleep and he wakes up and you know, be of good cheer. I mean, everything around you is falling apart. Be of good cheer. So our certitude is in that Christ has accomplished everything. Um, because in point of fact, the, the difficulty, I think, with the once saved, always saved, is if that were true, there would never be a time when you do something wrong. You should always be exuding this. And so what that says to me is, um, while I believe, O Lord, help thou my unbelief. You know, I understand the things, I believe these things. My unbelief is the inability to actualize them. And so, continue to call on God to help you actualize and be with him in that work he's already accomplished. So I think our security is knowing that reality um, of Christ. And again, that gets exemplified and drilled home in us because we actually lead a uh, liturgical life with a particular church calendar. And the church calendar has punctuation points throughout the year where we are commemorating particular intense Christological events in the life of our Lord that make this a reality. Like, for example, coming up um, on August the 19th, uh, we have the Feast of the Transfiguration of Christ. It's one of the great feasts. You know, we have to be in church that day and we celebrate Christ's um, transfiguration on Mount Tabor. Um, I mean that's a great example of how it's drilled home that who and what Christ is um, in his glorification there, and we have these moments throughout the course of the year, these events in the life of our Lord that reinforce uh, that confidence in us that he has done the, again the heavy lifting, but it you know in the course of our spiritual life it's for us to um, To conform to it to realize it to live it Um, and and maybe a little bit more I'll say more about the synergy or the cooperation between man and God because I don't want someone to be thinking here at this point that we're sort of Pelagian in the sense that man has all the power to do or not do, and that somehow limits God maybe I'll say something about that more with one of the other questions and if it doesn't come out I'll bring it out
0: okay that's fine Um... Yeah, I have a, another question, but I think it'll be better if I follow it up after Michael asks this one. So I'm going to let you go with that one. All
2: right. I know we've kind of touched on this one a little bit, but what is the role and nuance between faith and works and one's faith journey?
1: Yes, I think, I think we, we have touched on this. Um, but what is the role? One of the, the elements, well, first of all, um, the apostle uh, James says, faith without works is dead. I know that that's controversial. You know, there's the stories that Luther wanted to take that out of his new Testament, um, that faith without works is dead. And what is meant by that is that if we don't have the works, if we don't have, uh, the charity, the, the mercy, the comforting, and those things the Lord requires of us, as I mentioned earlier, that's in Matthew 25. Um, then we have no way to live our faith and no way to go deeper into the faith. In other words, if that were not true, if there were no such thing as works, then it would just be this mental thing uh, of faith. It would reduce rather to just a mental thing. Well, I believe this, therefore. And your life, there's nothing drawing you closer to God. There's, uh, There's nothing for you except just to say, I've checked off the box of the thing that I think, and that's all that there is. But we know, just in common human experience, that's not all that there is. Um, not to mention, of course, that the Lord talks about um, being charitable, and there's no option not to do it. But so I guess uh, the the most succinct way to do it is the the works reinforce the faith, and a deepening of the faith, and a drawing us closer to Christ. Um, and Christ Himself said, "In so far as you do that to the least of my brethren, you do it to me." So it's also a way in which we're not only loving our neighbor, but we're loving God. Um, and again, the Lord, the Lord says it. Um, one way of describing orthodoxy, or rather orthodox worship, is that Scripture come to life. Everything that we talk about here um, is expressed in the liturgy, and it's expressed through uh, the singing and the iconography, but all of those things are expressions of the gospel um, and bro- more broadly speaking of scripture itself. So I'm not sure if that really addresses, maybe you want to follow up to that, but it allows us <clears throat> to to live and deepen the faith and not just leave it as an intellectual proposition um, where we stay stagnant.
0: Yeah, um, I can definitely see that with uh, about the idea of the scripture being lived out with all the symbolism, um, with like, just even things you've mentioned here, um, like the going around the gospel book and then going around the church, um, just a lot of the symbolism there and in the liturgy itself, it, it seems to be a lot, it, it seems to be exactly that basically as the the scripture being lived out and practiced and also integrated within the service in a lot of ways. Um, I've forgotten my question I was going to ask earlier, but it might come back to me later. So right. anyway, um, to, to move on from that one, um, what does sin do to people?
1: Oh, yes. <clears throat> sin, um, strictly speaking, means t- to miss the mark. And it's to not do something exactly in accordance with God, and so when we miss the mark, then we are out there in a realm that's somewhat disconnected from God, but then we've placed ourselves out in that realm, and then we have to make another decision out there, and we're a little bit further away from the mark, and then we can miss the mark even further away and further away, and so we go in this kind of uh, spiritually dead zone tangent Um, And so that's what sin does to us. The the fathers call this prelust or delusion, that when we sin and we miss the mark, um, and if we don't repent, which actually means a turning back, then we're going to be out there in this kind of separated uh, web that we've made for ourselves. so far down so many different uh, life tangents that we're more removed from God. And so the remedy for that, of course, um, is the life of the church, which preaches and lives repentance or a changing of one's being or changing one's mind or a turning back. Um, so that's the, the counter to sin. But in short, what sin does is it kind of puts us in a false reality further removed from God in a situation to where our choices are then uh, options between less true choices and, and uh, a, re- a further removal from the reality of God
0: okay that was a good answer I don't have anything else to say so I'm just going to ask you the next question <laughs> um, how do you view the Eucharist and what implications does that view hold
1: yes um, well the Eucharist is itself the body and blood of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ there's no if, if answer buts about that Earlier, we we talked about an epiklesis or a calling down of the Holy Spirit um, for the ministry. You know, that's how the laying out of hands happens. But that's actually what happens in the liturgy itself. The priest or the bishop calls down the Holy Spirit to change this bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. So it is Christ himself. Again, as I mentioned from John 6, insofar as we eat his body and drink his blood, we have life in us. So it's the core and center of everything, without which there would be, there would be no Christian faith. There would be no connection back to God. It there would be, um, it would, if we didn't have this view of the Eucharist, it would render the incarnation superfluous and disconnected um, from man's everyday life. Yeah. So that's uh, the Eucharist itself is the full manifestation of the incarnation and connects us to and in that incarnation uh, of Christ. Okay. So
0: we've been to some churches that do not believe in the literal conversion of the body and blood. Um, Being that you said that it kind of completely, if you don't believe that it is literal, it kind of completely renders the incarnation useless. Could you kind of go into depth on how that is? Because I don't know, I guess, how does that um, affect churches that don't believe that, essentially?
1: Wow. If you could answer that carefully. Um, Sorry. It it would only be from an outsider. I couldn't answer it from the inside, for sure. Okay. Okay. Um, So, as an outsider, I I look and I see at least some of the effects. Um, I don't even know how many Christian... Uh, Protestant, uh, rather, Protestant denominations there are. But I think there are at least 30,000, if not more. Um, So not having the Eucharist as the central element, as it's clearly spelled out in Acts of the Apostles, then they're existentially and tangibly not Christ at the center. And it doesn't mean those people are of ill will and bad intent, It just means they don't have that sacramental anchor that connects them back to God. And now God can save whoever he wishes, and an Orthodox would never say to anybody um, that you are outside the church, therefore you're damned. Um, Actually, we sort of jokingly say that we know the only people in hell are are Orthodox. And what do we mean by that? We mean that if you're given the fullness of the faith— um, and to whom much is given, much is required, the Lord says. So we have no excuse. We have it. Where for whatever circumstances in God's providence, someone doesn't have that, um, we cannot say that someone isn't saved or that, that God will not save them or that, you know, we'll never say someone else is damned. And if someone does say that, they're just wrong. But we can look at the effects and see through uh, particularly from the the schism of 1054 and then from the reformation and the counter reformation and all the various spin-off movements that there is a lack of a unifying um, christic principle and that i believe is the eucharist and that that's that's that so i i think it has people adrift from the faith once handed down and sometimes It manifests itself in having to connect to the charism of a particular person or a particular uh, novel theological presentation or proposition. Again, so it's just very spiritually dispersive, I would say.
0: That was a very grace-filled answer. I know I kind of put you on the spot with that one. So
2: anyway, thank you. All righty. And for our next question, if God is truly omniscient, do we really have free will? Good question. I know it's a loaded one.
1: <laughs> it, it's a loaded one, but I think it, it's one that has certain presuppositions to it that sort of limit uh, the answers and, and limit rather the understanding. Um, well, first of all, if we believe God is omniscient, God is all-powerful, God is, to use a term I've used already, transcendent, then he cannot but be imminent. In other words, his creation cannot keep him out. Otherwise, he'd be limited, right? And so, his by definition, the created order has a beginning, it has an end. God creates with time. He doesn't create in time, he creates with time. Time is an effect or a product of creation. It doesn't stand above creation, but it flows from creation itself. And so sometimes we forget that and we try to put God into the flow of time um, and thereby we're afraid to give him limitations where he's on a completely different plane. So to go back to the answer, uh, the created order has a beginning and an end. Um, and so if things have a beginning and an end, then they can and do by nature tend toward uh, uh, tend toward corruption and, and you have you know, suffering and, and evil and all that that's a whole bigger question maybe that's a whole, a whole uh, interview in and of itself so I won't go too far into yeah, that. Yeah
0: we, we did an episode on the problem of evil okay Yeah.
1: but so what uh, um, God has done is in his creation and we know this from Genesis he created us in the image and likeness um, of himself and so our free will is a like part to God. We have the ability to make decisions now um, and to make choices. Um, and it's true that those choices are limited in so far as they happen within a particular context of the created order. In other words, it's not rival to God to have free will because he has no constraint. Now, we have a constraint, so our free will, if you put it, can put it this way, is relative. It can be deployed within the limitation of the created order, whereas God's, quote-unquote, free will is not constrained by any limitation outside of itself. And so it's really sort of apples and oranges. Um, God has a foreknowledge of, of what we will do, but he doesn't take away the choice that we have. Because in that foreknowledge or, um, of his created order, he's allowed that to exist. But also the, a very important point is if he's loving and he wants to, us to be one with him, having free will allows for the ability, uh, by definition, to have relationship, to have relationships, uh, to, to have love, to share, to do these things. And if we didn't have free will, the concept of relationship goes away because everything is just, as it were, robotic and predetermined in the lesser sense of that word. So I think it's just the difficulty. The question comes from an area that artificially, I think, puts God within the limitations of the created order and forgetting that he's actually outside of those limitations. And so the quote-unquote free will of God and the quote-unquote free will of man are really on different planes. I'm not sure if that makes any sort yeah, of sense.
0: I think that kind of subverts the whole problem right? by saying like these aren't even really the same thing. Right, So, right.
2: But Chad, it makes sense to me because you're thinking of an <clears throat> all-knowing, all-powerful being outside of your understanding to break him down into human terms is to take away from that power and i think that's one thing the question is brought up in earthly terms
0: yeah it's one of those kind of intellectual knots you get tied up in and then it doesn't really lead anywhere productive
2: at least yeah and also to for people who say that we don't have free will due to this that you're therefore also limiting god and also, not taking into respect that the limitations we have as humans.
0: I don't trust people that say we don't have free will. Yeah. That, that's Because like, they told me about that with their free will. That's or like, they were determined to tell uh, me that they're determined. Which well, is, that's like
2: saying, <laughs> I can't go be a basketball player because I'm five foot seven, 130 something pounds, yeah. and there's no way I'd make it in the NBA, so I don't have free will. <laughs> that's not taking into account the limitations of us as mortal beings. And so I think that was a very, very well-thought-out answer that gets down to the core of it's two different things. And so...
1: Yeah, and and what what, uh, Bailey said about the not trusting people (laughs) who say they have no free will. Uh, I have a a boyhood friend. We became Orthodox together, and now he's the abbot of a monastery. And a number of years ago, we were already priests, we were in a local restaurant, and we were with a couple other people, and we were just talking uh, about philosophical things, and we were talking about ultimately the contradiction of relativism and subjectivism. And, yeah, we talked a lot about that, too. Yeah, and the, <laughs> the, the waiter came by, and he said, oh, what you're talking about? Sounds interesting. And we said, well, we're talking about objective truth, and he said, well, I don't believe in it. And I said, well, that's good for us because we're not going to pay our bill. Because if there's no <laughs> objective truth, then it doesn't really matter, does it? And he goes, oh, no, 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 I believe in objective truth. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. Yeah. And our next question, do you think religion and science are at odds? We've had some interesting takes on this. Yeah. And so I'm interested to hear your take on it.
1: Yes. Are they at odds? Absolutely not. But we have to talk about it because they're not two equal things that are dealing in two differently equal realms. And we have to, um, religion is a, for again, lack of a better way of putting it, it is a metaphysical expression of reality. In other words, it takes into account that which is above the physical, to that which is within the physical, and it has everything within its realm, because it, it religion means to bind back; it's binding back to God, and again, God is not constrained and left out of anything, so its realm is broader. Now, science—it's what do we mean by science? Um, I think what we normally mean by science is things that come from the scientific method; that it's what poses as science today. But if we follow the scientific method in a very disciplined way, it is just um, a technique of understanding the consistent rhythms in the physical world. Uh, when we deal with uh, the scientific method, the idea is to freeze variables and to try to experiment um, you know, with a theory, and then can we, can we replicate it? Can it repeat itself and repeat itself? But that is to compress to a very limited realm, just the, the physical. Um, now, there are some fruits of that. Technology, we're speaking through these microphones and computers, that is harnessed scientific method. In other words, we can freeze the variables and predict the outcomes, and they're 99.9% of the time are going to just give us the same. Um, a whole, we have a whole other issue with the Heisenberg um, principle uncertainty principle that's a whole nother we'll talk about that maybe a whole different thing but so it, it just is a very limited thing about an understanding of what we can discern to be the fixed rhythms of the physical world and that's all that it is the problem and it's just empirical it's just empirical the problem is something that we call scientism is that 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 can explain that which is greater to it. In other words, you have people who would say naively that I don't believe in any I don't believe in a reality that can't be proved empirically uh, through the senses, through the scientific method. But the problem when you say that is you've made a metaphysical statement that can't be proved empirically. So if what you said is true, it's not true. Right? Because you have to accept the fact there's something above that physical realm that in some sense ontologically and intellectually hierarchically is higher. So when I say that religion and science are not at odds, it's because science, as it should be, uh, according modern science in its scientific method, is really just dealing with a very limited element of the created order and not of the entire cosmos and metacosmos, but sometimes, uh, they think that it is. And, and it, but when we say that is religion and, and science opposed, we mean religion versus a particular modern philosophy of science. Um, so yeah, there, there really is no opposition at all. In other words, uh, our faith is not compromised by the idea we have electricity inside of our church, uh, to quote Rudolf Boltzmann, um, a demythologist of the early 20th century, um, you know he basically said if you can flip a light switch then you know you don't believe in miracles you know uh because somehow science can explain all this stuff but that's just a failure to understand that the products of the modern scientific method just really deal with a limited realm of the created order
0: yeah i think <clears throat> this this whole question kind of stems out of something of a cultural war probably i started paying attention to it maybe a decade ago or so where it's kind of um the creationism versus evolution debate and um well I, it comes from a lot of people who don't know that there's more than one view of Genesis 1 that think that it has to be this specific literal mm-hmm. you know and I, and you're free to believe that if you want but you know it's not you it's not dogmatic to be christian and believe this specific interpretation of Genesis 1 and so I think that kind of gets people in an intellectual knot when it comes to science trying to kind of say a priori, I refute, I don't believe this because I believe this, you know, trying to use the Bible as like a science textbook, right. basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because
1: I, I will tell you to kind of magnify your point. If someone says, Father Mark, do you believe that creation unfolded in six days? So I absolutely believe it unfolded in six days. But then I would say, but do you know what a day is? Because uh, you don't have the you don't have the ability to reckon modern days until the fourth day of creation. So a day in the life of the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Um, that's in the Psalms, and that's quoted again um, in one of the epistles of Saint Peter. So, yes, I believe in um, six uh, days of creation. I believe the world is. What at six thousand years old, but what's a day? What's a year? What's in, what's in all that? So, um, that's one of those examples where you're trying too hard to reduce religious language into the scientific method or scientism.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. and also I think another large point, at least for me, is watching both some. Protestant denominations, and then a large group of atheists take these two opposing viewpoints and use them as their own religion. And instead of focusing on appreciating what has been created and given, which I've always viewed science as that, appreciating and understand what has been given forth to us. Whereas the atheists will try to be like, okay, due to this that I can't prove equals this. And then on the other hand, they would say, like Bailey said, using the Bible as a science textbook. Mm-hmm. Which to me just creates two instead of looking at it for what it is and what it always has been and not what it what they're making of it, it creates just the barrier that they're just going to keep throwing rocks over and it's something i've noticed especially in the past 10 or so years mm-hmm. that's it became a large problem because if people follow history the church has always been involved in finding things out learning new things appreciating the world around and it, therefore involved in science whether it's studying the stars or anything like that it's always been involved doesn't have to be two separate things because if you believe in a truly all-knowing all-powerful god anything he can create can be created even if you don't understand it
1: and and one of the things too because uh, i think you said that you're interested in in history is go back and look before the renaissance and look at the science of the medieval west um, the science of uh, the, the byzantine area and even you know the Asian sciences, um, you will see that they are not the modern scientific method. It's not simply reduced to the physical. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite fascinating to, to see that there's an, even an account for uh, symbolism within that. In other words, the idea that the physical presupposed the metaphysical was never lost on them, whereas today in modern science... Um, The idea of the physical uh, precludes and denies the metaphysical.
2: Yeah. And that's like thinking about, say, the Big Bang Theory. What started the Big Bang Theory? That leaves the question of... The first cause is still unknown. Yeah. And to me, leads to creationism in the way I think of it.
1: It's always a series of begged questions. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And instead of just pigeonholing and just saying just because of this is this that puts limits yeah and
0: I'll let you right. do the don't don't mind the awkward silence anybody it's uh, just me and Michael silently communicating to each other to figure out who's asking the next question and it is Michael We have determined it is and Michael. Michael's asking the next question right now in your
2: opinion <laughs> How should Christians interact with politics?
1: Uh Uh-oh, this is a good one. (laughs) Some say that pastors or or priests should be neutral and shouldn't have a view or that... And uh, I think that's completely and totally false. However, in principle, there can be within the Christian community, within, even within the Orthodox community, um, people disagreeing in a healthy way with particular political philosophies, economic philosophies, environmental approaches, what, you know, those things that constitute modern politics. Um, but to kind of go a little bit more deeply into the issue, again, since orthodoxy is a way of life, um, it's not held out by anything. And so when we have a, um, when we think politically, when we act politically, um, and when we do something in the political sphere, like voting, when we go into that voting booth, we don't cease to be an orthodox Christian when we're in there. So uh, I will say that we don't, side with one particular partisan um, approach, we also have to pull back and see that the Orthodox church has existed for 2,000 years. It's in an, almost every country on the faith of, face of the earth, most countries. And so there's a whole plethora of political systems currently and then through, through the ages. Um, quite honestly, I'm a monarchist. that's a whole different it's a whole different story. Um, I would love the opportunity to convince you that that's the way to be, but but we'll, we'll step back from that right now. The important element is that a priest um, should always project the realities of God and the realities of man. And so, what's very important to in the political sphere, and I do this when I. Um, I I don't say that I tell people who to vote for, that's not what I'm saying, but I tell people how to vote. Not the who, but the how. So how do you vote? You have to look at a political platform in our realm. Let's just leave it to the United States of America. Look at a political platform, a candidate, and does this candidate or platform promote something that is antithetical to our ability to live the Christian life? And more precisely, is that does it presuppose, A, that man is made in the image and likeness of God, and that each person is an individual entity that deserves to be protected um, and promoted? Or B, is the person actually just an individual whose value is determined by his relationship to the state. In that case, we can be dehumanized. In that case, we can accept things that are against uh, our Christian conscience. Um, Obviously, we can talk about abortion all day long. Uh, We can talk about murder. Um, But, you know, we've often looked through history and we see, well, how is it that the communist Chinese or, the, or the, the Bolsheviks could do such inhuman things. Why? It's because they believed politically that the value of a human being is as an individual that is a particular piece in the state and the state is the overall value. Um, and this is what I think initially the quote-unquote American experiment in the grand historical scheme uh, has a fighting chance because when the founding fathers of the United States said the pursuit of life, liberty, uh, and happiness, what that is sort of code for in the sort of however limited Judeo-Christian ethic is the idea that the person is his own individual reality and that it's to be protected and safeguarded. Um, And so how does the church interface with politics? That's it, is that Um, my role as a priest is to encourage people to take their orthodox principles and apply them to how they're going to behave politically in this political system, you know, we vote and, and we, we do all that sort of thing. And so it's to keep those things in mind. So I don't, I don't care what the party is. I don't care what the, um, you know, what the, it was R it's a D it's an I it's whatever they all are, um, is that actually, is that distinction made more and more, I'll just be honest with you, um, both parties are really more toward the latter, that the individual has a value only in relationship to the state. Um, and I, I read the other day where in China, somewhere near the Wuhan area, when this coronavirus happened, there was an outbreak of the virus in this big apartment building. And the, I heard the communist Chinese authorities locked up the building and everybody inside basically died. Well, and the idea was they're trying to protect the other people from getting um, uh, getting the virus and, and, and having a broader um, manifestation of, of the pandemic. But they had no compulsion about doing that because the, the idea is the value of those people is only in relationship to the state and not they don't have value in and of themselves. So politically, that's... Um, if I'm ever compelled to speak pl- publicly about politics, that's what I'm going to say. Um, when people come and ask me and say, well, how should I, I vote? Um, I would say, you ha- that's, those are the two principles you have to look at. Um, and I will say, it, it, quite interestingly, in the year 2000, George, or it might have been 2004, but George W. Bush, whatever we think about him, um, there was a letter with his name on it to Orthodox Christians that actually made this distinction. And I was completely surprised. Um, uh, not that he was a good president or anything like that, but at least someone had in his cabinet or his um, advisors had that understanding. Um, again, that maybe we're getting sidetracked by mentioning that. But um, so I guess the, the question is, you know, how do we interface with politics? And again, just like... Um, Religion and science, um, just like um, God's omniscience versus free will, we're really uh, really talking about um, asymmetrical relationships. In other words, the church is not a political party, and we shouldn't reduce it as such. And likewise, we don't bring in politics and then try to make the church fit into the politics of the day, if that makes any sense. So I I hope that—and I rambled a good bit, but—
0: Yeah, I think it was good. Um, So, sorry, you can go ahead. I'm trying to collect my
2: thoughts anyway. I I think that was a very good way to put it because at the end of the day, parties change. The politic of the day change. The controversy of the day changes. What doesn't change in throughout history, you can see this is the religion, especially looking at orthodoxy. It doesn't change. The Bible, the gospel is still the same. What is taught and passed on is still the same. And so even pre-America with monarchies uh, and then throughout America with democracies, fascist dictatorships, so on and so forth, all of those change. But the religion practice doesn't. And what it represents doesn't and And, so I think that's a very well-spoken powerful way to put it don't boil it down to just this party for this or this party think about it and use your principles and your morals and push forth with that
1: and I will say that in the history of the Russian Church in the recent history in the 20th century with the Bolshevik Revolution uh, obviously the church had existed under the romanovs for 300 years and b- believed broadly speaking that monarchy was was best for russia but when the revolution happened they tried to the church tried to work with the bolsheviks but when it became clear that the distinction i talked about that basically the value of an individual was Determined by the state, and that's when they actually spoke out, and and that's when um, and ultimately the Bolsheviks knew that, and that's where the why the persecutions happened. If you had to boil it down, is it had a different view of humanity, um, and it couldn't allow for the church to exist that just by its existence promoted a different view of humanity.
0: Okay. So I had, I had two things that came to mind. Um, yesterday I was watching a video about kind of Christianity and culture. And basically, um, it was, it was from a more evangelical point of view, but they were trying to talk about like, how do you communicate with people today, um, as a Christian and how do you bring them towards Christianity? And one question the interviewer asked was, do you think that talking about politics pushes people away or brings them closer? And the guy responded that he finds that talking about politics in general pushes people away because people already have preconceived notions about certain parties so when you start talking about that that's it kind of turns people off immediately Um, but you also can't just stay neutral you can't just say nothing about certain things Um, I guess kind of going from there how does how okay, that was just a comment basically. Um, trying to figure out where I'm going with this. The other idea is, um, how do you know if you ought to vote at all? Because what if you know both parties or whoever you could vote for fall short of that criteria that you listed earlier?
1: It's I, a good, that's it. a good question, yeah. Um <clears throat>
0: are are you are you immoral for not choosing the lesser of two evils or is it is it a good thing to just keep your hands off
1: 50 60 years ago and further back ago it would have been possible to stay out of it I, I there's a lot to say here um You've probably heard the term of, of outlaw. And when we say the term outlaw, we think of you know this cowboy and this renegade, whatever. Oh, I'm an outlaw. But in reality, it's just someone living outside the law. And one of the phenomena of the modern era is there's no such thing as an outlaw anymore. In other words, I can't choose to go remove myself from the system completely without the system coming to find me. Uh, and that's one of the real ills of, of modernity uh, politically speaking. So then we're sort of thrust into your question. Um, do I do nothing or do I choose the lesser of evils? I mean, again, it's a it's case, case, case by case basis. Um, sometimes the choosing of the lesser two of evils is pointless because they're they're basically cut from the same cloth and you're you're not really doing anything different. It's just the degree to which uh, harm is gonna come your way or you believe will come your way. But sometimes choosing the lesser of two evils is that there might be a spark or something to build upon on that lesser of two evils. So you're gonna go in that direction because I think we might be able to build on that. Um, my hunch is, and I'm not anyway any way infallible about this, but my hunch is that's easier to accomplish Uh, in local politics than in in sort of more national politics. Um, And thinking about being an American, I'm an American, I live in the United States of America, Um, I think if there's a certain strength in sort of local approaches to safeguarding that which be safeguarded, um, then, you know, there could be some effectiveness. And in that case, I would say, well, it really does matter who your county councilman is because they're trying to make sure that an overarching federal government or state government doesn't impact your way of life, you know, that kind of thing. And then you have a certain freedom, if you so choose, to lead the spiritual life with very few impediments. Um, but I again, my the apocalyptic side of me says that the way that national politics is going with the weird amalgamation with big tech and all that, it's harder and harder to kind of get away from it to where at that, at some point you just throw your hands up and saying, well, the end is near. So I'm just going to cross myself, uh, participate in the fullness of the life of the church. Um, while I still have the time to do it. And at the end of the day, God's going to sort it all out. Um, but sometimes it, you know, again, you can't forget that the Lord has over, uh, overcome the world. And so it's easy to get sucked in and forget that. So I guess that should be part of my answer is, is that I always have that right hierarchical relationship, uh, intellectually speaking. And then as a Christian with a history of, of martyrdom, maybe there is a time when this is obvious that what I'm doing right now is leading to that martyrdom. And that's what God has planned for me. It's not a popular answer, but I think that's the right answer.
0: All right. Um, Kind of branching off of that, what is one general thing you think Christians in America should work on? If you had to pick just one thing.
1: I've, I've touched on this already. I think not reducing religious life to a political category, or to just being a self-help technique. Um, in other words, I think the, the, the trend in America is to relu- reduce the full breadth and power of, of the religious life. And if you believe and carry yourself in such a way that you take religion seriously, um, you're the odd person. You know, and there's, there's, um, again, I'll tell a little funny story. Um, my, my father is one of the funniest people I know, and, um, he has no filter. That's a whole nother question. Um, but he will kind of do things with a little twist to, to make a point. And the day I was ordained to the priesthood, um, after the service, I was, uh, as a, I'd been a priest, well, I me 30 minutes and I'm sitting next to the bishop, and my dad comes up to me and says, Son, religion's a wonderful thing. Just don't let it interfere with your life. And of course, he was completely joking, trying to embarrass me and all that kind of stuff. And he was also kind of trying to make a point that the exact opposite is true. Um, so I, I think, as far as Christianity in America, it's making sure that you, you know, a Christian sees himself uh, and lives in such a way that uh, the the faith is first and foremost as it was for many um, centuries before and then putting uh, politics and other things in their right perspective and, and not having it be on equal footing or even on lesser footing. I think that's a
0: good response because it's interesting seeing... Um, with all the pastors and priests we've interviewed um, I don't think any two answers are ever the same with this question and it's good because I agree with all of them (laughs) but uh, yeah um, did you have anything on that
2: I think that was a very well put answer and that touches on one of the things that kind of bothers me about modern Christianity everything down and sometimes we'll put earthly politics and things on a higher level instead of where they're respected at
0: yeah so I guess as a the last question kind of a closing thing um, what is the process to become a member of your church
1: oh yes Um, well in certain Protestant megachurches not to call them out but I will. You can just sit there. There's a membership card. You take out the golf pencil. You fill out the membership card. Check the box of how much money you're going to give, and then you're a member. Well, uh, that has never been the classic, historical, from Acts of the Apostles Christian way uh, of becoming a Christian. Um, and also, I will add, since I'm on the mega church kick, um, no offense to any friends I might have in a mega church. But megachurches are not in Acts the Apostles. If you look in Acts the Apostles, all the churches are small. Sometimes they're in homes. Um, the bishop, the, the presbyter, they know all the people. Um, when St. Paul is writing his epistles, he even mentions specific people as if he knows them. Uh, we have no reason to doubt that he, he, he doesn't, didn't know them, but there's a certain sort of very human, interactive, um, pastoral care thing going involved and in a mega church the problem is of course I'm digressing so please forgive me but in a mega church is that you can actually go and stand with or sit with the people that are just like you the doctors can sit together the lawyers can sit together and so you end up segregating yourself in such a way that you're not around anybody who isn't just like you whereas in the apostolic model in Acts of the Apostles, um, basically whoever is here is here, and there are people that that I relate to um, in my parish that, if I were left to my own devices, I would have no relationship with. They're in a, a different economic, a different intellectual, um, a different ethnic background, whatever. But the interesting thing is that, you know, sort of in the apostolic uh, approach, um, the churches are smaller and everybody knows each other and that what your station in life is is, uh, secondary. And I've digressed so much. I can't remember the original question. How do you join the church? How do I join the church? That's right. (laughs) Yeah. The question. And so in ancient times, you would um, become what's called a catechumen or someone who listens to the faith. And this process... Uh, would take anywhere from one to three years. Uh, now, practically speaking, um, it's anywhere from six months to a year, probably. Depends on your background. Um, it, really, it's the idea of living a rhythmic life on a church calendar with liturgy and sacraments and all of that entails. It almost takes a year just to see it. Um, and it takes a lifetime to learn all about it. Um, and in point of fact, as I mentioned earlier, when you asked about the itinerary of the service, and I said the first part of the service is called the liturgy of the catechumens, that's actually, the, the catechumens would be there for that first part of the service. And traditionally speaking, you even have the still, as, a, as in the liturgy, it says, catechumens depart, let none of the catechumens remain. As are of the faithful, again and again in peace, let us pray the Lord. So there's a dismissal of the catechumens because in the ancient times, they would actually be taken by a catechist at that point, while the rest of the community would be preparing to receive the Eucharist. The catechist would be basically unfolding the meaning of the Creed, which is actually, you know, what I do in a, in a Zoom class here recently. But so nowadays, people stay in, you know, the church and they see, uh, and that itself has a didactic component to it. But um, so what happens is it takes about roughly a year, you go through the the cycle um, of the church year and uh, the life in Christ through the calendar. You are taught various things, you participate in the rhythms, you start fasting, Uh, you start praying, you start giving alms, and you start doing all these things as it's taught to you. So it's not just an intellectual thing, but it's actually starting uh, in a way to regulate your life and bring your life into conformity. Uh, to the rhythms of the church. So it's not something you can just sign a card and say, Sign me up, but it's actually something that takes time. And uh, unfortunately, and you asked me about you know, Christianity in America, spiritual patience is one of the things that's lacking because oftentimes people say, You know, I can't just sign the card and you know, I'm not going to stick around. But if they want to do anything else in life, If they wanted to get a college degree, if they wanted to get any kind of technical training, if they want to learn how to play a musical instrument or or, or learn a language, that takes time. It takes drills. It takes different levels of knowing, learning something. Um, So yeah, it does take time. But it's again, it's all about, as Saint Paul says, putting on Christ, Um, and that's about kind of an entire refocusing and changing of how you live your life on a day-to-day basis you know, having the church be at the center and then informing you as you kind of project that project outward in your life. So anyway, so uh, historically one to three years, um, but practically speaking nowadays, roughly about a year. Okay. Gotcha. Um, I think
0: that's about it. Um, I know there's probably a million and one other questions I could ask or could have asked, but, um, for the sake of this interview, it's been very good.
2: Uh, you have any other final thoughts? I've enjoyed this interview a whole lot. Yeah. Very informative, very well-spoken, very intellectual. Yeah. And through that, I can tell you're very strong in your faith and that you withhold your faith to the highest degree. And that, to me, as an outsider, says a whole lot, not only about you, but about your faith.
1: Well. You know, again, it's it's a it's a lifetime thing, and it it takes intentional work on a da- on a daily basis. And I'm by no means a saint. I hope one day to become a saint, but um, so I hope what you're saying is really just seeing maybe a not so uh, perfect Orthodox Christian, but at least get a get a feel for the um, the the depth of it.
2: Yeah, and very very humble instead of some of the churches we've been to have been super ego driven or trying to play God in some sense, not going to put any names, but you seem very humble and comfortable with your position. I remembered that question from
0: a long time ago, like an hour ago or whatever it was. I'm going to go ahead and ask it just because it's on. I remembered Uh, when you're talking about how um, hopefully you'll become a saint what happens if you don't become a saint? What happens if you don't, you know, reach the destination of theosis in this life? And I know that kind of beats around the bush of the question of purgatory for Catholics, but what is kind of the Orthodox response to that movement?
1: Well, the first thing is, I will tell you that we are always our own worst judge, when we think that we're making progress, we're probably not. And we think we aren't making progress, we probably are. So when I say becoming a saint, it's putting yourself in the right disposition in this life, but at least at the point at the point of, of death, to be able to receive uh, Christ with all that means on the, on the other side. Um, i mean not everybody in fact when we have the feast of all saints in some of the hymnography we talk about even the saints that we don't know about so um but again you know god is merciful and uh, this is going to open up a big can of worms too but one of the things that we do is that we actually uh, pray for the departed um to help them in in their journey as they uh, posthumously, uh, are drawn toward, towards Christ. And of course, there's a lot I could say about what happens, what the Orthodox believe happens at the point of, of death and, and how that journey goes to Christ. Um, it's not like purgatory like the Catholics, but I, I guess the, the best way to answer that is that God is the ultimate judge and, um, we are judged by our intentions and God knows all the mitigating circumstances that we have in our life. So he really knows the playing field that we're working with. Um, but again, um, God will always do the right thing and God defers toward mercy. So yeah, if, if you're working on yourself and you don't quite perfect it, um, that will be uh, rewarded by our lord for sure
0: because i think when i mm-hmm. i think of this i'm a very perfectionist type person but you know there there are people who kind of like look down and say oh well at least i'm not like that and then there's other people that look up and are like well i'm not as good as that so in my mind i'm like well you know i try but i guess i could try harder I don't know. How does that kind of fit in?
1: It's really interesting because that is a spiritual perspective that we take account of. I mentioned earlier about some of the Sundays that thematically precede Great Lent, and one of them is the Sunday of the publican and, and um, the Pharisee where the Pharisee does everything correctly. He knows how to tithe properly, knows how to pray properly. He knows how to say the right hymns of entry to get into the temple. And then he looks over and sees a tax collector there who doesn't know how to pray, just beating his breast and say, Lord, have mercy on me. But the problem is the Pharisee then says, at least I'm not like him. And there are a couple of other times in the course of the year where some of that hymnography is interwoven between the publican and the Pharisee. And the point being is one to stay away from pride, but that one is that a humble approach that might not be correct in all the dottings of the I's and the crossing of the T's of the spiritual life um, would be eclipsed by one's uh, desire to repent and be with God. There's this great, uh, story of one of the unnamed saints uh, to kind of stay on the same theme. Uh, in the we actually celebrate him, I believe, on March the 30th, um, and all we know of his name is the monk who didn't judge. And it's a story of this saintly monk. They, we, his name is not even recorded, but he was terrible at being a monk. He couldn't even remember the Lord's Prayer. He would show up late for services, he did everything incorrectly, um, he didn't know how to do things uh, like tithe properly, um, to fast properly, you know, all the things that you do in the day-to-day spiritual life he didn't know how to do. Um, and then one of the, the monks had a vision of him um, while he was being judged, and there was the this, this scale, and it was lumped down with all his sins and insufficiencies and there was just one piece of paper that said but he never judged anybody and so the vision is that piece of paper gets laid on the other end of the scale it outweighs all of his sins and we just know him as the monk who didn't judge and he did the he did the one thing he didn't judge um so maybe that's an an example that um it's it's not a perfectionism but it's a um intention to have a purity of heart turned to god that is that is the real determining factor. At least, that's that's definitely as the way the church expresses it, expresses it and teaches it. And that's ultimately what we see in the Lord, um, with who He's healing, who He's forgiving, and and all that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you for answering the bonus question. It just came back to my brain. Um, yeah, I think it's been good.
2: Um, got anything else, Michael? I don't. I got a lot of things. I'm definitely going to re-listen to this and break even more of the stuff down yeah. for myself. But I think it's been a very, as I have said before, enjoyable interview, very informative, well-spoken. Yeah,
0: There's a lot of depth to everything, so yeah. I'll definitely need to... I'll send it to you once I make it, finish it all up.
2: And for all the viewers, <coughs> if you need to come back to it, come back to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've I've listened to a couple of our interviews twice, and you pick yeah. up more on it when you when when you dissect it that way but anyway um i think that's about it for this week um next week we're going to be attending the service or next week on the podcast you'll hear our thoughts on the service and that kind of thing but yeah thank you for uh doing the interview
1: it's been my pleasure
0: and uh it's been
2: real it's been fun it's been real fun we'll see you guys next week